2: Throughout history, there have been stories of dolls that were dangerous. Sometimes such tales come from voodoo legends, or from TV shows like The Twilight Zone or Night Gallery, or from films like Child's Play. A few strange occurrences can turn a child's plaything into an object of terror, changing a trusted doll into a totem of fear. Let me tell you a story, and while you may find it hard to believe, the following story is true. The story took place just a few years ago. There's a little girl. We're going to call her M. M was a child who loved to play with her dolls, but she was also very creative and liked to decorate her dolls with paint and markers. Now, in her mind, she was just having fun, but it bothers her parents to see her dolls transformed into garishly painted and occasionally dismembered creatures. One day, they found her favorite doll with its hair cut and permanent marker stains on its face. It was missing a leg. Her parents wanted to teach her a lesson, to teach her not to mistreat her toys, so they told her she needed to apologize to the doll. Reluctantly, she did so, but then came the hard part. They told her she had to throw the doll away. She didn't want to do it, but they were insistent and made her take it to the trash can and put it inside. Later that day, her parents took the trash out to the street for pickup. The next day, M woke up to find that her doll was back lying on the floor of her room. Her parents found her there holding the doll and accused her of getting it out of the trash can. "'The trash is dirty, and it can make you sick,' they told her. "'We know you like the doll, but it needs to go away.'" So, back into the trash it went. And this time, M's father took the doll himself and put it in a trash bag while the girl watched. And then, he took the bag out to the bin and dropped it into the bottom of the can. "'You need to stay out of the trash. "'You said goodbye to your doll,' he chided her. "'Don't let me catch you out here trying to get her back.'" Now, M denied having touched the trash, but she agreed that she would not do so. But the next day, the doll was back. And this time, it was in the girl's bed when she woke up. She screamed, and her parents came running into the room. Her mother asked the girl why she'd gotten the doll out of the trash, but she said she hadn't. Oh, we want to believe you, honey, but dolls don't climb out of the trash, they told her. Yet she was insistent. She hadn't touched the trash. The doll must have come back on its own. So the father and the daughter put the doll into a plastic bag, and together they drove more than a mile away where the little girl watched as he threw the bag into a dumpster. This should solve the problem, he said, and they went home. A few days later, the whole family was planning to take a road trip, and as they were preparing to leave, taking their bags out to the car and loading up to go, the parents heard a scream. When they went to the car, There, sitting in the car seat, was the doll. Everyone was shaken up by this, but M's father insisted there had to be a logical explanation. Still, everyone was a little relieved as they watched him place the doll into the trash yet again before they all got into their car and drove off on vacation. The trip was uneventful. They arrived at their hotel They got room keys for two rooms with a connecting door and the father went to park the car while the rest of the family made their way up to the new rooms where they found the doll sitting on the bed as if it were waiting for them. When this story began, I assured you it was true and it is a true story. That little girl was my daughter and the terrible, terrible prankster who kept putting the doll back was me. Coming up next, Demonic Dolls. It's
4: actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before.
2: A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man.
4: In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stoltzner.
2: And I'm Blake Smith. Demonic dolls. Devil dolls. Monster dolls. Creepy dolls. Call them what you want, but the history of dolls that people have seen as monstrous is quite long and full of frightening stories of the type that will make your hair stand up on end and give you goose flesh. I'm quite fond of the episodes of Twilight Zone that feature scary dolls, or of Night Gallery*. Movies like Child's Play and the movie Magic fit this motif as well, but many of these tales aren't considered pure fiction. The self-proclaimed demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren keep an allegedly cursed Raggedy Ann doll called Annabelle in their home museum and claim that the doll has led to deaths. Voodoo dolls are alleged to help enable magic spells. The Hexum heads, while seeming to be mundane in origin, somehow are alleged to have inspired lycanthropic activity. But perhaps no allegedly evil doll is more famous than Robert the doll. There are links to some of the stories about Robert in our show notes at monstertalk.org, and there have been books and movies made about him as well. Countless TV shows have shown the doll, and legends gather around Robert like spiderwebs in an attic corner. As you might guess, I'm a fan of other podcasts, and the very popular show called Lore covered Robert in episode 15, I enjoy lore, although the host, Aaron Menke has different purposes in mind for his show than I do. He does tell a good story, and I think that that episode gives you a good feel for what people might be thinking when they go to see Robert the Doll for the first time. A link to that episode of Lore is in our show notes at monstertalk.org, along with other fascinating connections. Let's get to our interview now, but stick around because I want to do a little bit more talking about Robert after we've heard from his curator, Dr. Corey Convertito.
3: Monster Dog.
4: Dr. Corey Convertito has a PhD in maritime history, focusing on the 18th century British naval history. Corey is the curator of the Key West Art and Historical Society, which oversees the Fort East Martello Museum, which is the home of Robert the Doll. So welcome to the show, Corey.
0: Thank you. Great to be here.
2: I bet this time of year you get a lot of questions about Robert.
0: Uh, Actually, all year long we get (laughs) questions (laughs) about Robert. Uh, I mean, this this time of year, yeah, with Halloween, and it's also uh, his birthday this month, so I think that. Oh, how old is he now? Adds to it. He's 112.
4: 112. I heard that he received a letter from George Bush when he turned 100. Is that true?
0: Uh, Yeah, he did. Wow. Wow. Uh, Both uh, President Bush, and then he also got one, I think it was the year or two later, when um, Jeb Bush was governor of Florida. He got one for his birthday as well. Wow. Famous guy.
2: Well, they probably thought they were writing Bob Dole. (laughs) 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 Could you tell us the story of Robert the doll and why he's so famous?
0: I I suppose, I I guess we can start with what, what he is. And then I guess how he came to be here. Robert is a um, Steiff doll. That's a German um, doll company that's been around. Um, I think they were established a little bit earlier then, um, Robert was fabricated. Um, they're famous. They've made the first teddy bear for Teddy Roosevelt. so um, they're they're quite well known, and their uh, production like their dolls are and and bears are quite valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was made um, and brought to the u s. Um, there was a family that lived in Key West called the Otto family. they were a multi-generational family that that lived on the island. And they were of Prussian descent and Steiff being um, in present day. Germany, there's the connection uh, between the family and uh, the the area where Robert was made. And so a family member um, of the Otto family actually bought the doll for a, a young boy named Robert Eugene Otto. Who lived in Key West and his dad was a doctor. His grandparents uh, owned a pharmacy here, so um, they were quite prominent family in town. They were a very well off family, and their young son came to have this doll in 1904, and the the doll and the boy were um, inseparable for for years. He. You know this the doll is quite large, it was life size, it would put in close to Robert Eugene Otto, the, the living boy size, when he received him. Uh, and they were just really inseparable. Uh, the family remembers uh, Robert bringing the doll around uh, with him, taking him where he went, talking to him. And the story goes that Robert, the boy would blame robert the doll for things that robert the boy had done wrong and Mm -hmm. so this transference possibly created some kind of energy around the doll and so people uh you know believe that robert is uh, uh plenty of things um either you know, whatever their base has their interpretations of Robert, but um, this energy that was projected on onto the doll, I think that's uh, the really the the base of the the story of how Robert got to Key West. and I'm sure you have follow-up questions, oh, we do. we do. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> for so that. so I don't want to I don't want to give away everything right uh, right All now so I was,
4: <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the the odd events that have uh surrounded the doll
2: and maybe but, could I, if you don't mind can we do like what kind of odd events happen while robert had the doll and then and then maybe split that into before and after robert was no longer in the picture
0: the, the boy started going by gene so that might add some clarity to whatever we I guess, discuss from, from now forward, I'll just call him the boy it will be Gene and the dog will be Robert. So that will be, that will hopefully, <laughs> less confusion. So. right. Um, um, I, you know, his family was, and I, I think that's a very, um, it's a different time when, when obviously Gene was a little boy. So I'm not sure that any of the stories when. Like the initial stories about the doll, um, aside from the odd relationship that people felt that Gene and Robert had, um, I don't think there's many stories like early on about goings on in the house. Most of the things are coming out later on in life. And I think that is a, a time frame uh, issue. I mean, people just didn't really divulge their personal business and talk about things like this. Um, especially really early 20th century. So a lot of the stories about Robert and the problems that people felt that um, Robert was causing kind of came out, I'd say, probably in like 1920s. Um, people would say they would you know hear noises in the house and they would hear uh, Gene talk to the doll, but they would hear in a different voice the doll answer him. Uh, That's usually what the family remembers the most about the Early relationship that Jean and Robert had. Um, later on, um, Jean moved away, moved to France to study art. He was a, he was a really talented artist. Wanted to follow this as his life's passion. Went to France, studied art, and stayed away for a while because he had met uh, what was to be his, his future wife. And so he returned as an adult. He'd left a you. Know, teenager late um or early 20s and then had come back and had been married so the situation i think it kind of escalated more once eugene returned to key west with his wife uh, and took possession of the house and that's when things started getting a little bit more pronounced i think neighbors took notice and obviously with other people non-family members living in the house i.e gene's wife i think that that sort of prompted a little bit more hubbub about the relationship and potentially what was going on. A lot of it was two different voices coming from a room that only contained Eugene and Robert. So that I think was one of their um, big concerns. And that was something that circulated around Key West the most. Um, people would be at the house and they would say they would hear footsteps uh, in rooms that were uh, said to be vacant Um some people said they would see Robert in one window in the house and in a different window, you know, within a couple of minutes and nobody was in the room. So how would he have moved um, if nobody was there? So possibly just on his own. So I think that was a lot of the strange goings on in the house.
2: So so was there malice, do you think, in, in the activities at that point? Or was it just bizarre? I mean...
0: I think it's more bizarre, and I don't know. I mean, I, I should probably just say that you, you know I try to learn about, and obviously, I'm for what I do. Um, I look for facts nice. for things and trying <laughs> to understand. <laughs> well, you know, being a historian, we kind of rely on that. So there's a lot of speculation, a lot of stories, and you can find you know so many things on the internet about Robert and and these. You know, it goes from docile to completely. You know, insane what you can find out there about him and what people have written and said that they've experienced or they heard this happened. And there's lots of different stories about how he was created. And I think that if you dial back to what Robert really is um, and where he was from, uh, I mean, there's stories about him um, being possessed or having voodoo because he was made by a Bahamian. Uh, servant working for the Otto family. Well, we like I know that's not true because he is a Steiff doll. We've had we've had multiple discussions with um, Stife's company historians that have validated that Robert is part of a series that was done uh, in the year that he was purchased for Eugene Otto. So you know, once okay. you kind of remove those voodoo stories, a lot of the more crazy antics I think also become removed as well because it's the same folks in the same bits of information that are basing it on voodoo that have like the more oh Robert you know sets things on fire well you know we've, we've never found anything to, to substantiate any of that nobody's ever called and complained that Robert has set their house on fire or um, people I mean one story was a person was set on fire by Robert and they had to run to the ocean and jump in to, to put themselves out I mean it's, <sighs> it's borders on um, a, a little insanity yeah so. that,
2: you know, d- straw men typically avoid fire. I don't know what he's stuffed with, but,
0: you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. usually they do.
4: Well, that's interesting. So that, I, you know, it, it,
0: it, it really depends, I think, on what version of the story you're listening to and, and what has actually been um, complained about. I mean, a lot of people complain about him. And, and there's definitely people that lived in Key West that have been interviewed that – felt uncomfortable in, in the house, felt uncomfortable. felt a very uncomfortable spirit. What that is attributed to, I mean, obviously to Robert, yes, but what exactly it is. I mean, is it, is it malice? Is it just a bit of bizarre behavior? Is it a child impish like behavior to do mischief? You know, people have their own theories and it's, you know, I, I think it, I think it probably dials back from malice specifically, because um, they seem to be more outrageous stories that nobody can actually substantiate. <laughs> so um, okay. we we kind of we, the museum likes to th- say, or we 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 think he has. There's obviously an energy about him. That's that's an absolute. What that energy is and how it affects different people, I think it depends on people's attitudes toward Robert, how they treat him, and then what response they get from him varies because some people have a very good experience with them, some people have horrible experiences and, and say, you know, terrible things happen as soon as they leave him. So it's you know, I, I, I think it's all in his interpretation of their the, the, the encounter and the experience.
4: Well, it's very interesting to hear that uh, Robert was part of a series. I wonder if there are other Robert the Dolls in existence somewhere else. Well,
0: th- there are. There is one. Um, th- basically, what he was, was he was made for Stife. They made smaller versions of Robert. Um, but, I mean, Robert wasn't made as a Robert. He was made as a court jester. That's, this series was... Uh, very circus-like, court jestery He would have originally had on um, something similar to a court jester with a multicolored, uh, almost harlequin look to him. Rosy cheeks, uh, a hat on. Um, there was another one that the Stife Company historian came across. He Robert would have been a window decoration alongside other dolls of the same size. They were just meant as a window display, and then Stife was selling much smaller versions uh, for for sale. So we think, and the Stife Historian has kind of led us, I mean, that's where we've learned a lot about the origins of the doll. We think that because the family was very well off and because it was meant for a birthday present that either the series was ending and they were going to change out the window display, that those dolls became available uh, or somebody came in and just offered a lot of money for the doll because they they wanted to bring it back. So there are other dolls, not very many of that size. Most of them are much smaller, and by appearance, you honestly wouldn't recognize them. You know, Robert's face has faded mm-hmm. quite a bit over the years. Um, so, like, he's lost his rosy cheeks, and um, he would have had color, like, not, I want to say lipstick because it seems not nice to say um but he would have had some color in his lips where he doesn't now so a lot of that stuff has faded away but he would have been a court jester stroke harlequin that's
4: interesting because a lot of people think that he's a sailor from the the outfit that what's left of it
0: Uh, yeah that that is an outfit that eugene had to have put on him and we think Ah. that that was probably eugene's own clothing from when he was younger he's that big yeah, no, he's the size of a four. He's the size of a four-year-old child. Yeah, I mean, incredible. he's almost four feet tall. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah, that's not that's not an original costume for him. That would have been. We think it was probably Gene Otto's. There's a picture that his sister, um, uh, Gene's sister, had Elspeth, I think her name is, of Gene in a sailor suit, and it's it's he's kind of far in the distance. So we've tried to make it looks very very similar. Uh, in appearance so we think that was probably at one point gene's clothing that then he put on the doll
2: i am i'm just delighted uh that you're sort of popping the balloon of some of these stories right off the bat because that's kind of where our show tends to skew but i i from a historical perspective I, I'm wondering, the stories themselves, are are they mostly from an oral tradition, or is there actually written testimony of anyone who saw something strange, newspaper stories, or any, or like, what historical documentation do you have for this sort of attitude that there was something bizarre about the doll or the relationship that Robert had, or, or, or Eugene had with the doll?
0: Some people are still alive. I mean, Eugene only died in the 70s. Yeah. So there are still a lot of folks who, you know, lived here very, um, Long-standing families in this town. I mean, in fact, the next door, the neighbor that lived across the street from the autos, they, I mean, they've owned that house for, you know, 40, 50 years. I mean, they remember Ann still being alive and living there. I mean, the guy across the street was very good friends with Ann, who was Jean's wife. Um, so they remember them very vividly. I mean, he's very elderly now, um, but there's, I mean, there's always been an interest in Robert, and especially when he came to the museum in the nineties, I think people started digging around for, for information. I mean, there's a, the people that purchased Gene Otto's house after he passed away and Anne left the premises. Um, they inherited the doll because the doll was still in the house and did not take the doll with her when she moved. And the son Of the people that purchased the house is still alive, and I mean he remembers things. So you know, while he doesn't remember Jean specifically, he lived in the same house with Robert for a time before his mother donated the doll to the museum. So he felt something. So you know, we do have we have people that we can probe for information on Robert, their experiences with Robert, what they remember. I mean, of course there was some newspaper, but that was. Later on, after Gene died, I think people always thought he, him to be an odd duck. And and when he died, I think a lot of people started becoming more vocal about how bizarre they felt his behavior was. Um, you know, he he moved in pretty influential circles because his family had money, but also because he was a very accomplished. Artist and Anne was actually uh, a concert pianist. I think she, you know, she played in New York um, and they wrote music together. So they were, um, they moved in in quite affluent circles. Uh, And so, you, you know, you don't find that people are very vocal about the affluent. You know, it's only after they die they start making comments because, of course, they don't want to fall out of favor with their friends who have money, so they would never, you know, typically say something uh, negative. So, um, you know, you're finding a lot of these stories later on after Jean died and the house changed hands, and you know, Robert was was moving into, um, you know, with in with a different family. And then ultimately with the museum, so that's when a lot of this comes out. But a lot of people do remember, and they're still alive.
4: So, is there a, a book in the works at all? Because it sounds like it would be interesting while these people are still alive to uh, get their stories and to, because you have certainly a lot more information than you can find online. A lot of it seems uh, to be just folklore and and myth.
0: Yeah, um, David Sloan, who run um, the Ghost Tour in Q. S. He actually started the original Ghost Tour because Q. S. is, is I guess by all intents and purposes considered quite haunted. There's quite a lot of houses. There was, um, we you know, we had bouts of yellow fever, so we had huge losses of life at times. So David Sloan actually started a ghost tour company down here. I would say, oh, I don't even know when he did that. Probably the mid '90s. And David always had some affinity for Robert. He was when he got Robert got donated to the museum. David was very interested in finding out a lot about the doll and has actually, I think it's been about two years, the book's been out now. David wrote a book. We gave him access to a lot of our archival material and he did the legwork. The museum is just, we're a we're small museum. We don't have the manpower to do that. And David and I have known each other for years. So it it made sense for David to take the 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 lead on that, to to find things. So he spent you know, days at the library, contacting family members, contacting folks who would have remembered Gene uh, and Anne living uh, down here, and interviewing people and asking for photographs. So David did a lot of legwork, and and David did put out a book, must be almost two years ago now. Okay, that David did. So he he did, and it's not something the museum could have undertaken. So we we're quite happy, and we gave him, like I said, we gave him access. To uh, anything that we had to make sure that the book was as thorough as possible. We'll put a link in the show notes.
2: I know people who actually are are quite afraid of Robert, or very deferential to him, even from afar. And I and I wonder, there's this habit of sending letters of apology or something like that. Is can you explain that or talk about that or what's that about?
0: Sure. Um, You know, again, I think this this goes back to people's experiences and everybody who interacts with Robert, whether it's you know some people don't even interact with him in person. Some people uh, feel that they've interacted with him online by learning his story or watching videos on YouTube or wherever they can find them. And each person obviously has a very different experience with Robert. And they, whatever it is, the Robert, I, I, I suppose, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I This is something that's been long standing even before I was at the museum. Him, apology letters started filtering in from folks who had visited and felt that they had done something incorrect to Robert and, and needed to apologize to something because they were experiencing a string of bad luck, you know, and that varied in, in the degree. I mean, sometimes it was just as simple as our flight were, flights were delayed when we were leaving Key West to, okay, we came home from Key West and we found like a dead bat in our washing machine. You know, just weird things. And so we get letters, emails, people contact him on his, I mean, Robert has his own Facebook page and his own Twitter page. So people contact him any way that they can from all over the world uh, and just apologize or um, want to know why they're having bad luck because they just watched a video or felt that they were very respectful to Robert when they visited, but they still are having these horrible things happen to them and want Robert to lift whatever it is whatever negative energy is surrounding these people so we get all all sorts of letters and i mean phone the, call people call uh, you know wow. it's it's incredible isn't there a particular protocol
4: that some people believe in for for
0: taking photographs of him yeah i mean there there is and um, people are meant to ask permission of Robert to to take his photo he doesn't He's classically not enjoyed his photo being taken. He has really messed with people's cameras. The Travel Channel was down, and they actually, their main camera that they brought with them broke. um, So they had to use their backup camera to film them. Uh, Mysteries at the Museum, I think it was.
1: Okay. Had
0: come down and and done it from the Travel Channel. And, you know, their camera was messed up. So these are professional people (laughs) that know how to operate their equipment. So they actually all sent apology letters to Robert after they left because they they were completely um, convinced that that Robert had done something to their equipment. So well,
2: it, it sounds like Robert uh, owes them an apology. What? <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that's how it
2: works <laughs> does it, so i think it's the other way around can you can you apologize via twitter or does it strictly have to be a letter or, or how does that work i mean no
0: i mean you know in this day and age i think robert has to be slightly adaptable uh to to people's apologies and like i said sometimes it comes from people that have never even met him i mean he has a, a woman in Indonesia who believes that Robert is going to come kill her and her family and mm-hmm. sends things privately. Um, that's not something the museum would necessarily share. like the, her letters are not, you know we, we try to be selective with what we put out there because I think people feel that they are really writing to Robert and to put, put anything out. Um, you know on, on the internet, it's not necessarily something that they would like because it's a p- private letter to To an entity and so you know we we have this person in indonesia who is completely I, apparently convinced and so she's um she emails him at least three or four times a day and has done for gosh the last uh, five or six months um and then actually went to the museum social media page started emailing to the point that you know the museum staff who checks the the social media said, Oh my God, you know, do we need to be concerned about this because of the, mm. the tone? So, and, it, and she's never met him. She's never, she's never left Indonesia. So, I mean, he, he's very far reaching. So he gets messages from people who um, I, I don't have access or don't have the ability. I mean, there's no way that she can write this many letters per day and actually post them. So, you know, the museum is adaptable to how he receives sure. any kind of correspondence Right, yeah, he's got a Facebook page too, doesn't he? Thousands yeah, of likes. Yeah, he does, he's got his own, yeah, he does. <laughs> well, he does. It's- hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting
1: to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line
3: what's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket outsourcing business tasks you hate what about selling with shopify
2: fortunate i guess they don't have an unlike button right so i mean no one can offend him too much on facebook
0: (laughs) got an angry button i
1: guess yeah
0: yeah i mean yeah some some people say things that they don't believe in him on his his facebook page and you know robert typically doesn't have to respond to any of that because anybody else who's very supportive of robert and and um, follows him will just take up take up he's got his his (laughs) own defenders right yeah (laughs) yeah he does he really does people people just you know they gravitate toward him um good and good and bad
2: so so robert uh has been in the museum a while now and then um i saw he was on that uh, tv show with zach baggins uh yeah right so what was that like
0: um interesting okay interesting robert robert never left florida after he uh, arrived. we We cannot find any documentation that once Jean's um, family members brought Robert to Florida that Robert has ever left the state of Florida since. And so Travel Channel reached out to, to us asking if we would be keen on this bringing Robert to this program and, and uh, you know we were obviously very apprehensive about doing that because you know he's he's fragile, and you know, from the angle that I have to come, at it i'm the curator i have to make sure that if objects are moving around that they are very well protected that they're safe to do that that they're in such a fragile condition you know never mind that he's in a very human environment and i'm taking him to a very dry environment right. of las vegas that we're not compromising a museum artifact because i know we all i mean and all of us are guilty of it even at the museum we refer to robert as a human you know we call him him we don't call it it uh, okay. but you know, we, I have to have some realization that Robert actually is a museum artifact and so he has to be treated as such. So that was our big concern. Uh, and the travel channel people were actually were super about it and, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I know they, of course they have an angle about what they were wanting to portray Robert as, and what we were hope, I guess what they were hoping to, to, to get, um, their viewership. To, to believe about him and you know it was it was an interest it was an interesting experience uh, uh I'm sure you know, we get a lot of PR traction out of it for the museum and for Robert so I mean we saw his Facebook numbers jump and people were paying a lot more attention and people I mean people were calling the museum to tell us how upset because they thought you know they just saw Robert in Las Vegas and they just uh-huh. thought with the museum had sold him or the museum had our museum had moved him to Vegas permanently. And we got some really um, rude <laughs> correspondence <sighs> from people and phone calls saying, how dare we, you know, the, how, how dare we move him to Vegas and how he's meant to be in Key West and, and how we're all going to be cursed because of it. So it was really, I found that probably more fascinating than anything <sighs> were people's response to Robert, leaving Key West, even if it was only temporary.
4: He was going to get his own Vegas act.
2: I was going to say, and whatever's cursed in Vegas stays in Vegas, so that's all good. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> well, we, so, we, we made sure a lot of it hit his social media pages. Um, I actually got him. We took him, I, I, because, I mean, he's huge, to be fair. You know, he's he's this of a size of a child, so uh, I we were... Um, uh, we took him into one of the casinos and asked if we can actually put him at a slot machine and take his photo. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because, you know, when in Vegas, he might as well. Uh, and it was it was absolutely insane. People, I had to go talk to the pit boss about it. And we had to have security around us mm-hmm. because, um, you know, the guy said, you have a what? Because he, he traveled in a body bag, effectively. <sighs> so he could, I mean, really... He, he was in a, in a big suit bag because we couldn't take the chance of anybody spilling anything sure. on him. Mm-hmm. Um, so we walked into the casino with, you know, holding like a, a kid, uh, a body bag. And so people obviously are staring at you and they are going, what is going on?
2: How did he How did he do? Did he do okay?
0: Uh, no, he wasn't allowed to play. What? Oh. That was the rule. We, <laughs> could, we can only take a photo. <laughs> well, he's quite overage, I think. Um, because he wasn't, he, God forbid, you know, he won.
3: Ah, uh, so, <laughs> oh, true. Good true, point. And he's. Yeah.
0: I guess. I guess the IRS probably couldn't come after him for <laughs> for his winnings, their share yeah. of the winnings. So they they said just you know a couple photos, and the pit boss had to stand behind us, and we had security flanking us to make sure that nobody came up to us, and we didn't actually do anything that we. I mean, you know, who knows what we're up to? I mean, what a great story! Sure, I'm carrying a haunted doll around. <laughs> and he's playing slot machines. I mean, we could have that could have been some kind of ridiculous story to do something else that so we were heavily yeah. guarded when we were <laughs> there.
4: Uh, so you were talking about the agendas of uh, these TV shows and the the angles that they take. Do you feel like there's a lot of pressure uh, for you guys there at the museum
0: to play up the supernatural aspects of of Robert's story? Uh, I, I I think so. I think so. And I you know and of course we have to be very conscientious of not putting people off because you know it's we're the museum has to deal in fact, but we also don't want to discourage people feeling that the way you know the way that they would naturally feel. So, you know, we we do not say for anybody like whatever our personal beliefs are, whether or not I mean, there's staff members who really believe in Robert and talk to him all the time when they're in the museum, and there are staff members that just say, you know, really, this is, it, it, you know, it, it's it's a doll. So right. you, you know, we we can't let our personal beliefs come into that and what the museum allows out there. I mean, you know, my take on it is there's there has to be something to it because the, all these people can't be wrong i mean he's contacted by so many individuals talking about so many things and how he affects so many people's lives like who who's the museum to say yes or no mm-hmm. that you're right or wrong so the museum has to be very ambiguous but we certainly will not make up something just to um to follow through with an agenda let's say for a program like that i mean we've been contacted by a lot of programs i don't want to single them out like they're they're, they're oh, the only yeah, ones yeah, yeah. i mean sure. you know he's been to paranormal uh conference and you know <laughs> I, I i know that they were um, some people there were very much trying to push something and then the other people were just like okay i'm just curious and i want to learn something so you know we just try to be very middle of the road yeah, and I'm let sure people make their a- own decisions I'm sure it can be a good gateway to history in many ways too.
2: Yeah, I think so. Would people still come see uh, Robert if Eugene had just been an adult with an attachment to a doll? I mean, like if he if he had a, a mundane doll history, except that his owner had been peculiar, without the supernatural elements.
0: I, you know, who knows? I don't <laughs> well, know what the fascination is for people. Yeah. I. I, I can't say... I mean, some people are attracted to the the Robert story... The, or sorry, the Eugene story more because I don't know if it's something that they can identify with. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like a lonely little boy thing that people, you know, growing up and you have an attachment to, um, you know, other people or objects. So some people find the fascination and the, the attachment and not necessarily Robert, where other people are just fascinated by the supernatural and, and by Robert. And you know, who, who, I don't know. I don't know what, and people come in, people come to the museum because, specifically because they don't believe in Robert, and they just want to prove something that nothing will happen to them.
2: I see, I see.
0: see. So, you know, who, I I can't really say whether or not people would still come. I think that they would, Mm -hmm. because they do now for all sorts of reasons. So if, if if the circumstance changed, but Robert was still on display, yeah, of course people would probably come see him because they still have their own, justifications for that and reasonings to visit Robert.
2: This is kind of a, not really a follow-up, but I just thought of it, I want to ask. Is, is anyone who has been interviewed about what they've heard with Robert and Eugene talking to each other, did, did they describe the voice that they heard? Did I mean, I'm just curious whether it was the voice of you know how sometimes kids, you know, or even like almost like a ventriloquism, or was it a completely different alien? You know, I don't mean like from another planet. I mean, alien as not the voice mm-hmm. of Eugene. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I, it does. I don't know. Uh, David Sloan, again, who's the one who um, authored the book on Robert, carried out those interviews. I sat in on a couple of them. Uh, and he taped them, so he shared some of those with me. I don't remember if if it was mentioned, I don't remember personally. and uh, I know he interviewed people that heard uh, either Robert talking or Eugene throwing his voice, whichever the case is that you you know you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, i I don't remember. David is would be a better person to ask for that. I'm I'm not sure what the voice would have sounded like. I mean, for for the fact that people would follow up to say that they thought there were two people in the room, my gut instinct is that the voice was quite different. Mm. Because wouldn't you just think it was Eugene talking to himself if the voice was similar?
4: Yeah, yeah. And certainly when these stories are passed on, they become embellished and it's very difficult to know what really happened. Right so uh you were talking about uh eugene's art and how accomplished and well-known he
0: was and is do you actually have any of his artworks on display in the museum um we don't we own own some of his artwork we don't have it on display um some of the pieces uh it's uh, we think it's probably it's probably best security wise that they're not because they're smaller and People and I mean, of course, we never we would never accuse anybody, but you know, we certainly are more cautious with Eugene's artwork because of its size and because of the information circulating around about Robert and if somebody had an attachment to Robert, which they do. I mean, he gets love letters and presents and and all sorts of things. So w- the museum feels that it's probably for the best that we don't leave original artwork out. Because the museum is is busy, but it's not fully, I mean, it's supervised, but it's not, like, we don't have security guards in that room 24 hours a day.
2: I think we'd actually like to talk a little bit about the museum itself, too. But I I have one more sort of Robert question, which is, I've heard that that Chucky from Child's Play was based on Robert. Do you know if there's any truth Mm -hmm. to that?
0: No, absolutely not. Um even the the i I don't remember the director's name of the film. I mean, he even came up' he's obviously been asked this question over and over again, and he said no,
2: awesome that's really yeah, interesting he's, yeah. he's
0: he said no and i I know David tried to follow up with him when he was writing the book because that's something. That David and I have like a real bugbear about is this, and I understand, I get it, because they're dolls and they have owners, and you know, Chucky killed people and Robert didn't. But I understand it being based on something. But even the the, the movies directors come out and said, no, there's no basis for okay. for that. <laughs> yeah, I know it's out. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, people it just it is, and there's you know, the museum says it isn't, but you know, there's there's plenty of other websites that do so.
4: Okay, well, we wanted to ask you a bit more about the museum. Um, so what kind of work does curating a museum entail?
0: Uh, I'm responsible for all the objects in our collection and uh, writing all of the um, didactic information that gets put out there, as well as doing the displays. So kind, kind of a
1: lot. It
0: keeps me extremely busy. So that's, that's kind of my job in a nutshell and, and doing... Um, all, all sorts of dealing with inquiries and it's it's fascinating work I mean Robert is one of you know we've we probably have at least 30,000 objects in the collection so he's one of so he's uh I mean he's a big responsibility because he's one of our more well-known um, objects so he he does get we we have a bias toward him because of course you know he is he is more <laughs> special than some of the other <laughs> ones he is pretty special so we do have a bias but well, uh, that, that's that's my job usually
2: what sort of other objects do you have in the museum what what notable historical type things what do you like to highlight besides robert
0: well oh, so, so robert is in forty smartello museum the the historical society that i work for actually we have three museums so Robert is at the fort. There are, we, we tend to, each one has its own identity. Each of the museum sites has its own identity. We we run the lighthouse as well. So that has a completely separate identity and attracts a completely different set of visitors. Uh, And then we uh, operate another museum. That's the museum of art and history of Key West. So there's a little bit of crossover between the fort and the, the Museum of Art and History. So each one, we try to highlight different objects in each place, because let's say, for instance, the um, the lighthouse attracts people that are more interested in, you know, military history, usually, uh, or, or nautical history, or, or, you know, people just love lighthouses, so they go there. A lot of visitors to the fort are really interested in Robert. I mean, he is one of the big drives for people to go to the fort. I mean, there's a lot of other objects there, and that's what we tend to find with visitors. They'll come for Robert, and they learn so much more because we try to talk about the history of Key West in there, in that museum, we talk about all the different industries. The museum itself is a Civil War era fort that was used through the Civil War. It was used um, through the Spanish-American War. They used it during World War One and Two. They also, because Key West is the closest to Cuba, when there was the Cuban Missile Crisis, that actually that fort is the closest. Uh, building to, or one of the closest buildings to Cuba. So when Kennedy actually came to Key West during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, there was a lot going on at the fort militarily. So people liked that fort uh, in particular because of its military draw. So we highlight a lot of that history. What that also means is it when you have a military history, especially Civil War and especially before disease prevention and disease control was much more mainstream, a lot of the soldiers that were stationed in Key West, um, you know, died because we're in a very tropical environment. Yellow fever outbreaks happened a lot. Um, and, and they would quarantine at the fort. So I think there's always been this idea of death and a little bit of a darkness surrounding it. And so Robert was a natural fit the fort when he was donated because it kind of had that connotation anyway. But, and I think a lot of it is because of the history. I mean, history, you're looking in the past, it's gone. So it has that sort of error of of not being here anymore because it's like industries that are that are defunct. So you have, I think, that kind of that same mindset. So Robert was a natural fit to be out there. And then other objects started filtering in. I mean, once you have I guess one haunted object everybody calls you to donate or, or talk to you about other objects. Actually, before Robert was there, we had a donation, I think it was in the 50s, maybe early 1960s, of a horse-drawn hearse from the funeral parlor down here, one of them down here. The funeral director donated it because they obviously moved into uh, a vehicle uh, for, their, for their funeral processions, and they had this horse-drawn hearse. That had carried, you know, God knows how many bodies, and that was donated to us in the 60s. So we've always had that as an organization, and that's always been on display. Then we had Robert. Then um, there's a very, really creepy, horrible story about a guy that um, stole a woman out of uh, the Key West Cemetery. The the marker, because there was no headstone per se, because it was an entire above-ground mausoleum built for her there was a, um, a a marble sign that had her name on it and, you know, her birth date and her death date. And when the, the mausoleum exploded, somebody salvaged the this plaque, this sign, marble stone sign, and the museum actually has it. They donated it to the museum.
4: So I'm curious, has anyone ever offered to buy
0: Robert? Absolutely. We've had phone calls from people offering... All you know, insane amounts of money for you know, truthful or not, who knows? I, I, I don't know. I usually get lucky enough to field these phone calls, and yeah, I mean, you know, million, a billion dollars. Okay, <laughs> but sure. he's not for sale. <laughs> yeah, he's not for sale. He's a museum object. You know, we don't, we're not in the habit of selling museum objects. We had a woman call saying that um, she was, a, she was the. I don't know the somehow related. Oh, she was Eugene Otto's daughter, and she wanted the doll. And I said, "Okay, um, you know, obviously, I'll I'll entertain the phone conversation." So I said, "Oh, okay. So what are you proposing?" And she said a whole bunch of uh, numbers. And I just said, "Well, you know, they didn't have children, so I don't know how you know you're possibly (laughs) the daughter Um if they didn't have children." And so then she said something really nasty to me on the phone told me I would be cursed and hung up on me. So, wow. you know, we get all we get all sorts. I mean, I I don't think we've ever had a legitimate offer for Robert um mm-hmm. that people can follow through with, but we we get a lot of phone calls off, allegedly offering to purchase him.
2: Well, if if we go to Key West and want to see the museum. I mean, you said there's more than you've actually got three locations, but do you can you buy like one pass and it covers all three or how does that work? Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, you can.
2: Great. Okay.
4: Got to get out there someday.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. I've always wanted to go down there. And there seems like there's a lot of things to see. So that sounds neat. Yeah. And
4: yeah, there's a town.
2: beach too. Apparently, I hadn't. If you haven't heard that, that's a <laughs> just, just one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's tough. It's tough living here.
4: Isn't there uh, that that interesting uh, cemetery as well with all of the the witty epitaphs and some strange museum. There, down
0: there is. Key, West. Key, West, Key West Cemetery is, I think it's one of the most underrated uh, things to do down here. Um, you know, you go to places like New Orleans and they, they have special tours all the time for, and people are just so engaged with the cemeteries and here they do as good a job as they can um, because it's still an operational cemetery. Uh, so they, you know, they can't do like regular tours and they just encourage people to go through on their own. Okay. And they have wonderful maps online Just um, they don't want to, you know, disrupt services or tell people, you know, run tours while families are uh, grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they encourage you to do it on your own. And I don't know that enough people do that. I mean, there's some really hilarious headstones, there's some really interesting people that are that are buried here, and you have I think one of the more fascinating aspects of it is, and it kind of I think speaks to Key West uh, in general, historically is, you know, you've got ev- everybody's in one cemetery so you've, you know, you, you have the Jewish population, you have the Catholic population you have blacks, you have whites, you have Hispanics I mean, they're all buried in and amongst each other so it's a really neat I think cultural comment, but also um, I think it gives you a really good idea of who lived here and a lot of the history in Key West and some of the, the humor that goes with it. I mean, somebody has their pet deer. Actually, the Otto family has their deer buried with them. They had a pet deer. Wow. And um, they had, uh, you know, somebody has on their a woman uh, wrote like, see, I told you I was sick on her headstone. So there's lots of little funny <laughs>
2: That's really funny. But
0: you know, that,
2: I think it's kind of lamentable that that uh to some degree a lot of these ghost hunting TV shows seem to have um played up the idea of, you know, haunted graveyards and and cemeteries, I think, historically, they're they're places where you remember the people and it's, it's historical. You remember the history of the people, people you might not know. You might stop and see something interesting and like want to find out more about that person who did this thing or who, who was remembered for this thing or or at least think about them. Right. And in the context that they had and, the you know, all the other things that come with that, which, you know, the, the brevity of life and so on. But they're underrated. They're underrated. I think I, our listeners probably like them, but, you know.
4: Well, I think a lot of them were historically treated as parks and, were, and people would yeah. go there and have lunch. And so they mm-hmm. they didn't quite have the stigma that they often have today. Corey, we have a question that we like to ask all of our guests. So our final question, and that is, what's your favorite monster?
0: Um, I I don't know. There's just so many to pick from. Um I would say, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of, I, since I'm a historian, I'm, I think I'm a little old school and I would just stick to like a good classic like Frankenstein
2: he's he, nice he can't go wrong i mean
0: yeah yeah i, I think i'm just you know i like i'd like to keep it simple and I, like I don't think we've had as frankenstein as well.
4: before so that's good
2: well I, I i think someone will throw something at their ipod if i don't say well technically frankenstein was not the monster but you know it, it depends on how you look at it and certainly within the hammer films and in their interpretation of it the dr frankenstein did become the monster in many ways but i actually just came back from watching a young, young frankenstein on a special one night uh, big screen presentation last night i just it the whole idea of reanimating the dead it ties in nicely with this episode anyway <laughs> mm-hmm. so definitely i think it's a great choice <laughs> yeah
4: excellent but, uh, thanks <laughs> but um yeah thank you so much for coming on the show we've been talking about wanting to do a robert the doll show for years now so we're, we're very very happy and we're really excited about this one
2: and thank you great. so much well, for your ro- your work in preserving history and making it available to people that's really important
0: yeah. Thank Perfect. you. It's that's really what, what we do it for, you know, working for a nonprofit's not always the most glorious. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's things and just getting the out there and getting people to learn really makes the job so much more rewarding.
2: Monster Talk. You've been listening to monster talk. I'm Blake Smith.
4: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
2: You just heard an interview with Dr. Corey Convertito about Robert the doll and his strange history. As you heard, There's a particular atmosphere surrounding Robert in his exhibit at Key West. Corey called it an energy, but I want to talk a little bit about that idea. In his book, The Science of Superstition, psychology professor Bruce Hood tells about a fascinating experiment in which people were asked to try on a sweater. It's a simple experimental idea. Would people be willing to try on a clean sweater from a stranger? Most people wouldn't mind. But when Bruce tells them the sweater belonged to a notorious serial killer, suddenly, few people are willing to touch the sweater. Why? It's because we have an idea of tainted items. The things we experience, even the way we rate the quality of food and drink, is heavily influenced by expectation and mood and a number of complicated feelings beyond the immediate visceral act of experiencing whatever it is we're trying a big idea in the study of superstition is that people attribute agency to particular patterns of events and sensations. Superstitions come from the very powerful effect of our brain finding patterns and matching them to a particular cause. If you wear green socks and your team wins, and then you wear green socks again later and your team wins, well, it's the socks. It couldn't be the skill of the players or the random variations that happen during a game. No. No. Clearly, your footwear choices are really the deciding factor. What else could explain it? Okay, that's a silly example, but that's the kind of stuff that superstition's made of. There's a mental effect called confirmation bias, which comes up again and again when we research why people believe bizarre and unlikely things. Confirmation bias is a tendency to see things which confirm to your belief, and to ignore things which don't match the pattern. If you've ever lived with someone who frequently left the seat up on the toilet, you might find yourself thinking, he always leaves the seat up. Yet, what if sometimes he doesn't? Would you notice? Why would you? That's not the pattern you're looking for. Attribution is a big challenge in researching the paranormal. When something peculiar happens, was it caused by aliens? Was it a ghost? Could it have been demons? Did anything even really happen? If something did happen, was it really peculiar? This whole problem of attribution, who or what caused that strange event or that unusual feeling, is something to consider very closely when thinking about Robert the doll. And another important psychological effect is called priming, the setting of expectations, whether consciously or unconsciously, before an encounter takes place. Just like listening to creepy music and seeing other scary trailers primes you for an experience at a horror film, Imagine hearing legends and lore surrounding this doll Robert before finally coming to see him on display. Robert isn't just a doll in a museum, and he's not just adorned with a sailor outfit and filled with straw. Robert is decorated with thousands of stories and more than a century of lore. He's stuffed with meaning as much as he's stuffed with straw. I don't think it's surprising that people find Robert frightening. But I hope that listening to these ideas and perhaps reading some of the material I've linked to will help you see that there are many very plausible reasons to be skeptical of Robert's alleged supernatural powers. No disrespect intended to Robert, of course. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views you've heard on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you'd like to see the reflected views of Skeptic magazine, you'll need to get a silver mirror and creep into the darkness of a graveyard by moonlight. And then, next to the big vaulted tomb, put your back to the entrance, look into the mirror, and mutter, Michael Shermer. Three times. Or you could just buy the magazine at your local newsstand or subscribe at skeptic.com. It's your call. Here's a quick reminder about a huge skeptics conference coming up in October. The Committee for Skeptical Inquiry is hosting SciCon 2016 in Las Vegas. Go to CSIConference.org for more details. But the guest list is amazing. you got James Randi, Massimo Polidoro, Elizabeth Loftus, Ray Hyman, Joe Nickel, Eugenie Scott, Lawrence Krauss, Look, the list is just full of awesome people. Go check it out. That's CSIConference.org in Las Vegas, October 27th through the 30th, 2016. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Steely Monkeys. The introduction segment's music is the song Creepy Doll by Jonathan Colton. Stay tuned after the outro to hear the full version of that amazing song. Thanks again for listening.
3: to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up.
1: In a town in the woods at the top of a hill, there's a house where no one lives. So you take a big bag of your big city money there And buy it But at night when the house is dark And you're all alone There's a noise upstairs At the top of the stairs There's a door And you take a deep breath and try it And the flashlight shows you Something moving just inside the door There's a tattered dress And a feeling have felt somewhere before and there's a creepy doll that always follows the doll disapprovingly asks if you really need that much honey. You decide that you've had enough, and you lock the doll in the wooden box. You put the box in the fireplace next to your bag of big city money. As the smoke fills up your tiny room, there's nothing you can do. Far too late. Inside the box is you And there's a creepy doll That always follows